Welcome to Church Online on all of our 6,000 plus unique campuses this weekend as you guys watch from your homes with your family or whoever you're around right now. We're so glad you're with us during this unprecedented time. And things are different right now and for some of us we're scared and anxious and concerned about what these next couple months are going to be like or what they're going to hold for us. For, for the parents we're scared and anxious and our kids are at home with us, so we're trying to figure out how to be parent, employee, and teacher all at the same time. Which, which by the way, can I just tell you how, how insecure some of you parents are making me right now? I, I've seen your posts, I've seen the syllabus you've created for your kids, how you have seven different lesson plans, and how somehow your six-year-old is beginning to understand the theory of relativity. That's incredible, you're incredible people, but you're making me feel bad so this like sinful, envious side of me hopes that in about two weeks your kids are going to be binge-watching The Punisher while you hide in the bathroom because that's where we're at as a family. Like Jericho had a popsicle and a bag of gummy worms for breakfast yesterday, so, so thanks for making me feel bad as a parent. But, but these are crazy times, aren't they? I mean, I mean, we're facing lots of adversity, and, and I've shared this in some other venues, but that word adversity is important to us right now because with adversity, I stole this from a friend of mine, but with adversity comes great opportunity. And I want to process together with you the opportunity that we have before us today as a church, as people, as followers of Jesus Christ. So go ahead and open your Bibles or your Bible apps or maybe open a new tab in your browser. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 verses 10 through 21 today. And we're going to read that together. But before we do that and as you get there on however you're going to get there, uh, let me just say that you may have noticed that we skipped chapter 2 verses 5 through 11, which is like one of my favorite passages of scripture and actually something my wife and I had read at our wedding. Like, I love this passage, but we skipped over it. And the reason we skipped over that passage is because we're coming back to it on Easter, which it's such a great passage to come back to. So just be looking out for that. And we're going to skip ahead a little bit today from where Pastor Becky left us last week. Chapter 3, verses 10 through, 11, or 10 through 21. If you want, you can stand with me wherever you're watching this as we read scripture together. Here's what Paul writes. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you, only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. Well, to begin today, uh, let me just start by asking you a couple questions. Where does your allegiance lie? What are you loyal to? Many of us learned the word allegiance at a very young age as we stood up at the beginning of the class and placed our right hand over our heart and recited the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. From there, our allegiances and loyalties have spread into other arenas, clothing lines, workout routines, vehicle manufacturers, computer products, even what kind of cell phone you use. For, for some of us, we pledge our unwavering allegiance to sports teams, which, by the way, how are, how are you sports fans doing right now? I know we're over a week into life without sports, and this is difficult, and people are coping in different ways. I have a friend who created 64 different basketball teams on a video game, and he's simulating a tournament bracket of all 64 teams to find out who the champion's going to be. No one's playing. It's just computer competing against computer. And uh, to be honest, a few of us filled out some brackets to see how that's going to go, which the stupidity of this is not lost on me, but we need something. Seriously, if you have some other form of entertainment that that would help in this season that would be useful, please share it in the chat or, or let some folks know so that I can get a hold of it. Like if you know of a fantasy bird watching league or something, let me know. Uh, if you can't tell, sports are important to me. And, and I think all of the value that I place on sports stems from the fact that I have a very strong allegiance to my teams. And, and allegiances matter to a lot of people. There are entire departments in a lot of companies that are devoted to getting our loyalty. And some of you work in marketing and your whole job is to get me to pledge allegiance to your brand. And you're really good at it because we all have certain loyalties to different brands and services. But as we've become committed to these different things, there can be tension when there's conflict within our allegiances. Like if you have an allegiance to Nike, then that would dictate, your loyalty to that brand would dictate that you hate Reebok and Under Armour and Adidas. But let's just say I I love Nike. And I also love Steph Curry, but Steph Curry has a shoe deal with Under Armour. So what do I do? Because now all my Nike and Under Armour allegiance clashes with one another. And I know I use sports analogies too much. I I just miss them a lot. But, but, But I think this gets way bigger than basketball shoes. Like these conflicting allegiances show up in a lot of places in life and, and the potential for them shows up often. And I think this is what Paul is confronting head on in our passage today. If you remember back a couple of weeks ago, and, and Pastor Becky mentioned this last weekend as well, uh, but Pastor Steve introduced us to the tension that Paul created when he called Jesus Lord. It was the Greek word, the, the Greek word that Paul uses here is the word kurios, kurios. And it's a word that he uses to describe Jesus 163 times throughout his writing. And, and he uses it three times here in chapter 3, verses 1, verse 8, and verse 20. 
And Paul uses kurios more frequently than any other biblical author. So what is he trying to communicate when he writes this word in this letter to the early church? Well, I think what he's doing is that he is confronting any alternative allegiance or loyalty to Jesus. Paul says Jesus is kurios. Jesus is Lord, and he is to be regarded as such. And this thought would have stood in stark contrast to the known kurios of the day, Caesar. To the Roman citizens, and if you remember, Philippi is a colonial outpost of Rome. To them, Caesar is Lord. It's a political statement, but also a religious statement. Because kurios informs who you pledge allegiance to, whose orders you obey, and who you worship. It's all in the same package. I mean, we read the word Lord and hear the Greek meaning and think, okay, cool, that's, that's great. Lord, kurios, that's what, that's what that means. That's, that's interesting. But to someone in this time, in this place, when they read kurios, they would have immediately said, oh yeah, you're talking about Caesar. But then they, when they would have heard the implications of what Paul was saying, they would have said, wait, you're talking about Jesus? Do, do you realize, do you understand what you're saying. In the first century, you don't regard anyone else as kurios except for Caesar. That is reserved for him. Caesar's in charge. Caesar has the authority. Caesar's in control. Caesar is who is supposed to be worshipped. But now, Paul is saying that there's a new empire, the, the true empire of a new lord, the true kurios, Jesus Christ. As theologian N.T. Wright says, Jesus is the reality, Caesar the parody. Caesar is the imitation kurios, Jesus is the real deal. And if we look toward the end of this chapter, look specifically at verse 20. This verse is so important and can be the lens through which we view this entire section of scripture, uh, this entire section of this letter. Here's what Paul writes. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, something to take note of. The word that Paul uses here for citizenship is the Greek word polituma. It means citizenship and also means form of government. And our English word actually has a word that is a derivative of this word. And no, it's not the word polite. Actually, maybe the opposite right now. It is the word politics. And this is so important for Paul's audience because what he is very clearly saying is, brothers and sisters in Philippi, your citizenship, your political worldview, your allegiance, your loyalty, it lies in heaven with Jesus Christ, our kurios. And this is where I think we can wrestle with a question today that Paul presents to the church that is applicable to us. Which allegiance takes priority? And this question reaches into so many different parts of our lives, really every part of our life. And and we'll get into that in a moment, but first I want to understand with you that for Paul and his audience, the main thing they would have wrestled with is what does my citizenship in Rome look like in light of my citizenship in heaven? Based on how I view the world, am I willing to put my citizenship of heaven lens, 
ahead of my citizenship of Rome lens. And Paul expands this a little bit before he even writes verse 20. He says, here's the deal with the imitation kurios and those who are like him. And, and, and if we remember back, verses 18 and 19, he says, I'm writing through tears because they are enemies of the cross and their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their God is their, their own desires. Their God is their gluttony. That's what he's saying when he's saying stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But Philippi, friends, brothers, sisters, that is not where your allegiance lies. This is what Paul is encouraging the church to do in light of verses 4 through 6 of chapter 3. He's saying, hey, I've taken a hard look at my Jewish allegiance. I used to be the Jew of all Jews. I was the model for Jewishness. Like if there was a best Jew in the world award, I would have won that award every single time. But I've rethought my loyalty to Judaism in light of the crucified and risen Jesus. And he's encouraging them. He's saying, hey, I, I think you should process and rethink your loyalty to Rome and what that looks like because of our Lord Jesus as well. Your whole identity must be found in Jesus, not Rome, not Caesar, not whatever else attempts to get your allegiance. And before we go into some of the application for us today, we have to wrestle with a little bit more tension that Paul's audience would have been wrestling with. Because they would have wondered, if I, if I pledge my allegiance to Jesus, does this mean that I completely denounce my citizenship to Rome? And, and then on the other hand, if I, if I don't completely denounce my citizenship to Rome, am I compromising my allegiance to Jesus? And the answer to both of these questions is no. Paul is asking the Philippians to choose an option that transcends the simplicity of choosing sides. And I think this is helpful for us as well. Don't get caught up in which side you're on in anything when it comes to earthly matters. Don't worry about which side is the right side. Because here's the deal with Jesus. As Pastor Tony Evans stated, Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. He transcends sides. Jesus is the priority. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't engage with, with certain issues. On the contrary, it means that we do engage with the full knowledge that we are citizens of heaven first. And our votes, our conversations, our choices, what we do, how we live, should reflect that citizenship. In another letter, Paul told the Romans to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. You know, our neighbors, people who are not followers of Jesus Christ, they have a certain level of understanding about what is good and what is evil, as does our country. So if we are opposed to everything within our culture, then we may be opposed to some things that are good. Just because you have an allegiance to Christ does not mean that you disengage with culture, and it also does not mean that you denounce your earthly citizenship. I mean, Paul knew this. In the book of Acts, we see him using his Roman citizenship as a means to a greater end, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his citizenship in Rome afforded him the opportunity to live out his responsibilities as a citizen of heaven, as he presented Jesus in ways that he wouldn't have been able to if not for his Roman citizenship. And I hope that you can already start to draw parallels between the opportunity you have, we have, 
to use our dual citizenship as a way to advance the gospel. You, you remember what we talked about in, in week one. Uh, Philippi was a, a colony city with its, with its residents enjoying Roman citizenship at its highest level. Philippians enjoyed platinum status rights. But here's the deal with rights. With rights always come responsibilities. So Paul speaks to the church with this in mind. He says, you know what it is to live like Roman citizens. Even though you're far from, home, from Rome, you're still part of Rome. And in the same way, you are also citizens of another kingdom. A kingdom whose capital city is also far away, yet is also here with you. You are citizens of heaven, and as citizens of heaven, with rights, also come responsibilities. He's telling them that, hey, you're citizens of heaven strategically placed in Philippi. So your responses to whatever Philippi throws your way or whatever life throws your way must reflect your dual citizenship. And the same is true for us. We are strategically placed where we are right now. But within our dual citizenship, our primary allegiance, our primary allegiance is to our Lord, our kurios, Jesus Christ. So this means that with our rights that come with being citizens of heaven, we have responsibilities to call out what is evil, regardless of who it comes from. We have responsibilities to fight for justice. We have responsibilities to love all people. We cannot ever compromise our citizenship in heaven. And this is, this is so important. If your allegiances ever conflict, if you ever see something that your dual citizenship or your whatever, your, whatever else you're loyal to, loyal to, if they ever conflict, choose Jesus. Don't get caught up in everything one group or one system or one line of thinking says because Jesus transcends all of that. Refuse to take part in that which opposes Jesus. Follow him along the path of suffering because here's the deal with Jesus. It is ultimately him who will rescue and reconcile all things to himself. This is what defines us as citizens of heaven. And, and this is an, an interesting thought especially in such interesting times. Because my identity and your identity, if you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, is not found in anything other than Jesus. It's not. We were made for heaven. We were made for Jesus. And we cannot allow that identity to be co-opted by small things when measured against the scope of eternity. Our identity is not found in the country we live in. It's not found in the, the car we drive or the clothes we wear. It's not even found in the relationships we're in. Our identity is not found in our relationships. You know, I was meeting with a, a couple, a young couple last week, which seems like six months ago now, because apparently time has no meaning in this new shelter-in-place reality. But we had a, a great conversation together because this couple was processing what it meant for them that one of them was really questioning their faith in God, like if God even exists, and the other one was in a committed relationship with Jesus. And so as we were talking, we were working through all that, and I said, you know, the crazy thing about the Christian faith is that we put our allegiance to Jesus ahead of anything else. It takes priority over everything. It defines who we are, and this most definitely includes 
relationships. And when only one person has that allegiance, I was really trying to be gentle with this, but the truth is when only one person has that allegiance, things can be really difficult to reconcile when you don't view life the same way. And my wife and I know this about one another. Our identity is not found in the other person. And she probably leans into this more than I do because of how frequently she gets called Steve's wife, which she just loves. So continue to spoil her with that if, if you ever run into her. Um, I'm joking, don't. That, that won't, that she won't like you. But our, our allegiance to Jesus comes first. But the beautiful thing about finding our identity in Christ is that it enhances our relationship with one another. And it makes things very clear when, when issues arise or we disagree or we argue like the two times a year that that ever happens. Because Jesus, not her and not me, is the authority in our marriage. And this, this same thought pours into other areas of our lives. Our citizenship in heaven enhances who we are in, in these other places we find ourselves. Because allegiance means I am part of something bigger than me. I'm part of something bigger than myself. I'm not just in America. I am American. I'm not just in a marriage. I am married. I'm not just a member at a gym. I am an incredibly fit human being. Okay, maybe that's where it breaks down. But, but here's the big one. I don't just attend church or sing songs about Jesus or listen to words that make me feel better about myself or help me with my life or, or, or help me understand things a little bit better. Those are all great. But I'm also, I am, I'm a part of this bigger thing. I am a citizen of heaven. I am a follower of the crucified and resurrected Christ. And that allegiance, that loyalty transcends everything. So often we get caught up in, in those things that attempt to grab our loyalty. And I'm not talking about the superficial things that I mentioned earlier, like the clothing, cars, etc. Um, but the things that hit at a life level. Like when we pledge unconditional allegiance to self. That's, that's when I make all my decisions and position my priorities around what will, what will be best for me and my feelings. And sometimes we even become loyal to our fears and our anxieties and consequently become closed off to everything else. For you, right now, is this allegiance, the allegiance to self, taking priority? Or when I pledge unconditional allegiance to money or my career, that's when I make all my decisions and position my priorities around what will be best for me and my finances. Is this allegiance taking priority? Or when I pledge unconditional allegiance to my country, that's when I, when I make all my decisions and position my priorities around what will be best for my country and my people and the people who are like me. Does this allegiance ever take priority? Or, and this one's, this one's a tough one, when I pledge unconditional allegiance to the comfort and safety of my family and kids. That's when I make all my decisions and position my, my priorities around what will be best for me and my family. Is this allegiance taking priority? 
You know, at one point in his ministry, Jesus told some folks, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. This conversation is part of what he was talking about when he said that. Even good things, like your family, are not the highest end. That is not the citizenship or allegiance that matters most. And that can be difficult to reconcile, but our citizenship in heaven is the loyalty that takes priority because when we align our allegiances to Jesus, when there's an unconditional loyalty to him as kurios, as Lord, as the one who's in charge, who has the authority, how we live as a citizen of that kingdom is what we're chasing after. And it informs our response to and even enhances how we view those other things we are loyal to, ourself, our career, our nation, our family. It can enhance those things and inform how we respond and view those things. This is the allegiance we strive for, the allegiance to Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul's communicating in verses 13 to 14. He says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me that, about what I'm worried about right now, about the things around me that are happening that are making me nervous right now. No, no, no. For which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is what we're chasing after. This is what allows us to persevere and still move forward, especially right now. This is what makes us different. And church, it, it's so critical that we wrestle with our differentness from the world in light of this. We can't be the gift to the world that we're supposed to be if we're exactly the same as the world. And allegiance to the kingdom of God makes us look different. Because, and, and don't miss this, Whatever allegiance you claim, whichever unconditional loyalty takes priority, it will dictate the direction of your life. You will follow its orders. You will abide by its laws. You will not compromise its commands. And what do we know about the laws and commands of the kingdom of God? This should trigger us, one, uh, trigger for us one question in every single situation. And it's the question we unpacked for six weeks at the beginning of the year, and it's not going away. Question is, what does love require? You know, the majority of people are not asking that question right now. Most folks are asking questions like, am I going to be okay? What's going to happen next? Why aren't they taking this seriously enough? Why are they panicking so much? I mean, those are real valid questions to be asking right now based on your particular worldview. But followers of Jesus need to be asking a different question first because our allegiance to Jesus takes priority over everything. And our question is not inward in nature. It is outward. So this week, just some practical application for us. Before you post on social media, think about what the words you type might be communicating to anyone who reads them. It is not helpful right now to tell people they're panicking too much. It's not helpful to tell people what they're doing wrong. That's not the space to correct and rebuke people, even though sometimes we like to take advantage of that. So as you begin 
typing. Ask yourself, is this encouraging? Is this kind? Is this compassionate? What does love require as I sit down at my computer or pull out my phone? Before you consider leaving your house this week, before you consider leaving your house, this one hits close to home. Because from everything we know about this virus, which doesn't seem to be a lot, I could have it right now. That's based on what I read and what I understand. That's, I could have this virus. And I know that I don't want to be the person that risks the health of someone else to go and be with other people for as much as I want to. Like, I love being around people. This is difficult. But love requires that I don't do that right now. This is why all of our community groups and our care groups are, are meeting online, which if you need connection or help in any way, shape, or form, and you haven't joined yet, reach out to us. All of our campus teams are, are working hard to make sure that people are staying connected, even though it doesn't look the same as it did before, because while we don't want to keep people isolated, we also don't want to risk the health of someone else. Love requires that maybe we stay home. So before you consider leaving your house, ask yourself that question. Uh, when you go to the grocery store to get your essentials, maybe love requires that you just get your essentials so that other people have the opportunity to purchase what they need. And, and I get it. I've seen all the memes and, and frustration about toilet paper, which is a thing I never thought I'd ever have to say in a sermon. But, but just so we're aware, the, the reason people are hoarding so much right now is because everything seems out of control in their life. So if they can control the amount of toilet paper in their home or pasta or rice or whatever, then they're going to control that by purchasing too much. It's a way of getting back some semblance of control. But here's the deal. Citizens of heaven, we know that we've never been in control. That's what happens when you surrender your life to Jesus. You surrender. He's in control. He's in authority. He's in charge. So what does love require when you go to the store? Business owners, managers, employers, I've been thinking about you and praying for you all week long. I do not envy the situation you're in right now. And I can relate. But when it comes to how you care for your employees, and at the same time how you try and figure out the future of your business and how to ensure that your business is even a thing, as you sit in that tension before anything else, Wrestle with, pray through, process with God. What does love require? Like Paul said in verses 15 to 16, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Mature believers live with an outward mentality, an outward mindset, as we try to live in this new normal, let us live up to what we have already attained. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, let's live up to what we've already attained, what's been given to us in and through Jesus. Citizenship in heaven, in the spiritual realm, above all of this temporary stuff, it's eternal. So in light of that, how do we as citizens of heaven, as mature followers of Christ, how do we conduct ourselves today? You know, this is one of the most incredible things we learn from the early church. And I believe that if we follow the example of those first Christians, as they faced extreme persecution and, and terrible circumstances, if we can follow their example, we'll be comforted in a way that most don't even think is possible right now. 
And the world around us, if we do this, will see where our true allegiance lies. And I'll close with this story. Um, about 45 years after the Apostle Paul was executed, the, the early church continued to meet and they continued to live out the principles and instructions he gave for what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. In the year 112 AD, a man by the name of Pliny the Younger, and, and I know some of you are excited because I just said Pliny the Younger and you're thinking of your favorite triple IPA. Glad you're paying attention. Not talking about beer. Um, not today at least. But Pliny the Younger was the Roman governor of Bithynia and Pontus. And that's in modern-day Turkey. And he had a problem on his hands. The Christians were, were disrupting local business by refusing to idolize and worship the Roman gods and purchase everything that came with that. And so an edict went out to arrest the Christians and figure out who they claim allegiance to. Because at the very least, they needed to acknowledge that the emperor of Rome is Lord, is Kurios. So Pliny gets this command, and, and he's a diligent guy, so he wants to get all of his ducks in a row and make sure he's doing exactly what Emperor Trajan had ordered. So he wrote him a letter. And, and if you get a chance, read the full letter because it's fascinating. It's, you can find it online. But here's some of what Pliny writes about these Christians that he was doing research and investigating. He says, The sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. They meet to sing songs of praise and worship to Jesus as if he is a God, and they do it before the sun rises. Now, based on early Christian writings and the Gospels, we know that this day was Sunday. And why were they meeting on a Sunday? And why do we still hold this tradition 2,000 years ago? Well, they and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ who rose on a Sunday. So this is Pliny's first observation. They're, they're meeting, they're gathering, they're doing it before dawn, they're singing songs as if Christ is a God. And he continues. And to bind themselves by oath. Uh oh this is where it might get a little tricky. Because if they're binding themselves by oath, then maybe they're, they're starting to think up of a way to overthrow our government or really get disruptive for us. Oh, but wait, it's not to some crime. They would make a commitment or, or a pledge not to do something disruptive to the community or even to us. But here was their pledge. This is what they pledged to do. Not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. They made an oath to not do shady business deals. They promised they wouldn't steal from people. They promised they would be faithful to their spouse, and they made a pledge to keep their promises. None of this was common practice in that day. I mean, back then it was, get yours. Look out for number one, which I know is completely different than our society. I mean, no wonder Pliny started his letter to the emperor by saying, hey, um, it's my practice, my Lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. Like, I'm just wondering, why in the world are we arresting these people? It doesn't look like they're causing much trouble other than really caring for other people. It seems in their worship of Jesus that they are held responsible not to make their sacrifices and keep their God happy like we do in the Roman faith system, but they have a responsibility to one another and a responsibility to people in their community. This seems to be what their God, the God they have an unrelenting allegiance to, they will not, they, they will not deny that their allegiance to their God. This seems like what he commands of them. It's like they have a moral code that they have to follow that concerns themselves 
with the well-being of other people. Their, their, their concern for self seems to be non-existent. That's, non-existent. That's why they, they're responding so uniquely when we persecute them and arrest them and, and torture them. I mean, we're even killing these people, but they will not abandon their allegiance to this Jesus person who isn't even alive anymore. They aren't doing anything wrong except worshiping a crucified rabbi who has no political power, no authority. He can't lead anything because he's dead. But to these Christians and to us, he's alive and well. He's in control. He's in charge. They thought and we think that in the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. And that's exactly who we pledge our allegiance to. That's where our loyalty lies with our Lord, our kurios. Why? Well, like Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I love how Paul ends this chapter. Such a great reminder for us today. Everything is under control, the control of our kurios. Our Lord has this. You know, it doesn't mean that things aren't really hard right now. It doesn't mean that things aren't difficult or that we can't explain why things are going the way they are and we aren't struggling through some very real tough questions as a community and, and even as individuals. But followers of Jesus Christ, if we can clarify our allegiance to Jesus, we will live out of a different type of freedom you know, in a time where it seems like some of our, our freedoms feel a little more limited, just, just as of this week, citizens of heaven live out of true freedom. Something that is bigger than our situation and circumstance. We have the opportunity in the midst of adversity, because when adversity strikes, an opportunity is available. We have the opportunity in the midst of adversity to show people where our loyalty lies. And as citizens of heaven, we have a different kind of peace, one that doesn't make sense, a different kind of hope, one that transcends difficulty and confusion, a different type of unity, one that doesn't break or bend even in the toughest of times, a different type of loyalty, one that doesn't offer unconditional allegiance to anything but Jesus, our Lord, our, curio, our kurios, who has everything, has everything under his control. You guys, the Lord is so in control. He is so in control that he gives me the confidence to tell you that even in the midst of everything going on, even though we don't know what tomorrow is going to look like, even though we don't know what life is going to look like after this all settles down, even though we don't know what's going to happen to us in our earthly bodies, I can still say with extreme confidence, we're going to be okay. Don't miss that as a citizen of heaven, because your allegiance to Jesus takes priority. You and me, we are going to be okay. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I, I just, I come before you and even just saying, Lord, right there, I'm thinking of the ramifications of this prayer that we are acknowledging even in those simple words that you are in control. So, Father, our loyalty, we are, we, are, we are 
just in awe of you today, offering our full allegiance and complete loyalty to you and to your commands. God, let, let us live out your commands in these incredibly difficult and confusing times, Father, where if we look back at the course of human history, we know that your church excels in times like this. So let us take advantage of this opportunity. Let us be the church that you intend us to be, God, even in the midst of our own fear and our own anxiety. Let us trust the security that comes from being a citizen of heaven. God, you are, you are good. We trust that you're in control. We acknowledge your faithfulness, Lord. Our kurios, our God, the one we worship, the one we adore, the one we are surrendered to. Father, thank you so much for the rights that you've given us as citizens of your kingdom. Let us not take our responsibilities lightly this week. Let us be there for one another. Let us process this together. And let us go throughout our days with the full confidence of your authority in every situation. We love you. We adore you. We worship you. And we pray this in the matchless, powerful, beautiful name of your son, Jesus Christ, who has everything under his control. Amen.